This segment is brought to you by CRPS Warriors Foundation. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seat. The show is about to start. Hey guys, what's up? This is Phoebe. This is Mike. This is a Mike and Phoebe show, episode 16 for the CRPS Warrior Foundation series. Thank you so much for joining us. We are airing today, uh, April 8th, 2023. And for today's episode, we are so honored to have Dr. Peter J. Bergman joining us from the Bergman Foot, Ankle, and Nerve Center out of Las Vegas, Nevada. Hi, Dr. Bergman. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. Yeah, just got up here, had my first cup of coffee, so I'm I'm raring to go. Awesome. Now, Dr. Bergman, he is the past president of the Association of Extremity Nerve Surgeons, as well as board certified by the American Board of Foot and Ankle Surgery. So we're so happy to have you join us today. I'm very happy to be here, and hopefully I can uh, enlighten your audience and uh, spread the word about... Uh, not only uh, complex regional pain syndrome, but also uh, some other nerve issues that I think are uh, often overlooked by uh, not only physicians, but uh, certainly the general population. Yes, absolutely. Now, why don't you tell us about how you became involved with the CRPS Warriors Foundation? Well, it turns out that one of my patients uh, knew the current president of the Warrior Foundation, Deborah, and uh, she said she was actually a um, my former medical assistant uh, who went on to do other things. But uh, she said, hey, I have this friend and she's got CRPS and no one's really been able to help her out too much. And I thought, you know, given your background, maybe you would want to see her. And I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. And ultimately, uh, Deb came to see me. And, uh, you know, she certainly is sort of your classic CRPS uh, patient uh, who has this pain that just doesn't ever go away, really. And um, she's had a lot of different treatments. And I said, okay, well, we'll see what we can do. And so uh, basically, I just did a a bunch of different stuff with her clinically with uh, some treatments and and just recently, actually, just uh, performed surgery on her, uh, putting in a peripheral nerve stimulator. Ah. Yes, she did mention that. And um, I'm so happy that she has you as a connection, not only as a CRPS Warrior um, Foundation resource, but also as her doctor, you know, because that's so important to have someone who is very knowledgeable in that aspect. So I'm happy that um, you guys are in that connection. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's, it's uh It was one of those, you know, kismet things. Yes, definitely agree with that. Absolutely. So where are you actually uh, calling in from? Just, uh, you know, for everybody to know. Oh, so I'm just outside of Las Vegas proper, uh, hanging out in my house this morning. And, uh, yeah, my office is located probably about 10 to 15 minutes from the Strip in Las Vegas. Ah, nice. Very nice. So we've probably passed by it a couple times when we were in Vegas. (laughs) More more times than what we know. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Don't worry. What what stays in Vegas stays in Vegas. (laughs) There you go. Now, um, can you tell us about Morton's Neuroma and your quest um, to put in, uh, and you put it in in my emails. Um, Can you tell me about your goal um, about uh, Morton's Neuroma and what you plan on doing or hope to do? Sure. So 
First, let me define what Morton's neuroma is, right? So everyone knows what that is. Uh, Morton's neuroma was actually a, a, a description by a guy named Morton, who was a foot surgeon way back when. And actually, he was actually the second person to describe the this disease process or entity process where uh, one of the nerves, the interdigital nerves in the foot, and it's usually between the third and fourth uh, toes, and then secondarily between the second and third toes, where the nerve actually becomes swollen, it gets a lot of scar tissue around it, and it can become very painful. And initially, uh, this guy, uh, Morton, called it uh, Morton's neuroma, or it was named Morton's neuroma after him. And it really is, we like to laugh, it's a, it's a misnomer for the uh, misneuroma. So it implies that it's a tumor, and it really isn't a tumor. Uh, it's an entrapment syndrome, just like uh, carpal tunnel syndrome is in the wrist. So uh, this condition occurs because there's a ligament, uh, the deep transverse intermetatarsal ligament, which sits on top of that nerve. And, and, and when you walk, that ligament rubs on that nerve and ultimately starts to create an entrapment syndrome from repetitive overuse, and the nerve can become... Um, larger, triple, quadruple the size that it normally is because of all the scar tissue that forms around that interaction between the ligament. So what did people do for it? Certainly they treated it conservatively for quite a while, but uh, when conservative therapy fails, and unfortunately with this condition, it probably fails more than it succeeds when someone has it really full blown. Uh, and, and the symptoms are typically like a burning in the ball of the foot, specifically around the third and fourth toes. And you have this sometimes radiating, shocking nerve pain that happens in the toes. And people will describe walking on a marble. Uh, sometimes they'll say their socks are bunched up under that part of their toes. And so if you diagnose it and treat it, you understand this condition really well. And so I've been treating this for a really long time. And initially when I learned how to surgically treat this particular problem, we would cut it out. We would do a neurectomy. Uh, basically going in usually from the top of the foot and taking a scissor and just cutting that nerve and letting it retract uh, into the foot and hopefully it would uh, sort of die down, peter out and, and never bother you again. The problem with this procedure is uh, that there's a reasonable chance somewhere between 10 and 30%, no, no one really knows the exact numbers, that you're going to get a stump neuroma after you cut that nerve. What does that mean? Well, anytime you cut a nerve, it wants to grow back. When it grows back, the little axons, the little nerve fibers that come out from it, try to attach to something because that's what they did before. And when they try and fail, they become painful. And when they become painful, and this can even lead to complex regional pain syndrome, I'm very sure that uh, people who've had neurectomies have gone on to develop. In fact, I know a couple of patients who had uh, complex regional pain syndrome. One in particular was one of the most interesting cases I've ever seen <clears throat> where this poor woman had a neurectomy done and she developed these uh, ticks in her head and her neck and, and just had this chronic pain that never went away. And to my knowledge, I don't think it ever went away to this day. So that was one of the most extreme situations of where someone went in to have a neurectomy and came out and it really ruined their life. And I've seen that multiple, numerous times. So doing this neurectomy is not without <laughs> significant um, uh, potential damage to a person's life. And unfortunately, I think a lot of surgeons don't really understand or see the ramifications of that. And they assume it's sort of a benign procedure Well, they'll just cut the nerve out and hope for the best. And, you know, maybe a lot of their patients get better, but there's a, there's a better process. And so what is that better process and better procedure? And that's decompression. And again, just like in carpal tunnel surgery, what we're doing is we're making a little incision on top of the foot, going down to that ligament, 
just like the carpal tunnel ligament, and we're cutting that ligament. And when you cut that ligament, it's no longer compressing the nerve, no longer rubbing on the nerve, and now that nerve is free to heal itself, and certainly that will happen over time. <clears throat> In, in at least 80% of the, the cases. Uh, my success rate seems to be somewhere in the 90 percentile. Uh, you know, we do a little extra things here and there, and certainly my microsurgical training uh, is helpful in that diagnosis. So I don't think anyone can just go dive in and do decompression without having proper training. But the whole point is to preserve the nerve. We, there, there makes there, There's really no reason to primarily go in and cut that nerve initially when you have decompression as an option, because decompression cannot make you worse. Sure, you can have a normal complication of an infection or something like that, but decompressions really cannot make you worse. You'd have to, I mean, I've, I've done over 700 of them and not one of my patients that I've done it on has gotten worse from a decompression. And the number of people I've had to go back in and actually cut the nerve out is probably less than 5%. Wow. So now is decompression a relatively new uh, procedure? Or that um, you've discovered, or is this, you know, maybe a little older procedure, you know, um, how does that come about? Yeah, so it's probably about in this country, which is really where it was sort of uh, generated from, it's probably about uh, 20 years old at this point, mm. um, where where uh, there's a, a, a medical doctor named Lee Dellen who um, sort of, uh, I don't want to say pioneered, but he was the um, spear, tip of the spear in, in promoting uh, decompressions uh, because he's a hand surgeon by, by training as well as a plastic surgeon. And I think he just retired. And uh, so he uh, actually set up a workshop uh, for uh, surgeons to come and learn how to decompress things. And so him and others have really uh, brought this to the forefront or attempted to bring this to the forefront. And that's kind of where... Uh, the Association of Extremity Nerve Surgeons came about because he had his own thing. And then we decided as podiatrists that we're going to also create an entity where we can train other doctors to recognize and treat this using this technique. And so, but today, you know, I would say predominantly doctors are still cutting that nerve out, certainly uh, outside the United States a lot. Uh, but even in the United States, it, the nerves are still getting cut out. And it's really a disservice uh, to the patients because if, you, if they don't understand or, or know what decompression is, they're not going to offer it to their patients. And I've had plenty of patients who've been told by other doctors, surgeons, mostly orthopedic surgeons, that, oh, yeah, that doesn't work or, you know, I tried it and failed, so it's a waste of time. And that's just not true. It's just those surgeons never took the proper training and never really took the time to understand it and, and think it through. You know, I kind of it's a totally different subject here, but it's kind of like what happened to me a couple of months ago when I was listening to a, a, another podcast uh, in the medical field uh, with a colleague of mine, and he had a gentleman on there who basically dispelled the idea that putting ice on everything after surgery or after injury is really not a good idea. Ice actually retards the healing process. Uh, yes, it may help with some temporary pain relief, but it doesn't do anything to help your swelling go down or or your pain or, or long-term recovery process. So for me, I had to make a, an adjustment in my the way I treat my patients. And right, so now I've shifted to really eliminating ice from the use of my surgical patients. Oh wow! Wow. See, and um, you know, I'm not a medical professional at all. I'm just a regular person. So in what I've been brought up to know is that ice would, you know, um, heal a little bit, you know, uh, bring down the swelling, but then 
um, not use ice all the time. So, you know, that's just, I guess, common knowledge. But now things are different. Yeah, or even use a uh, combination of ice and uh, heat, at the, you know, or, you know, off and on. Yeah, yeah, that, that's called contrast therapy. We're using the ice and heat, which I still use in my practice. Like, it, I, I'm sort of hanging on a little bit, and some patients really want to use that ice. And so I'll say that's fine, you know, let's at least lower the amount of ice we're using and put some heat in there uh, mm-hmm. to use with the ice. And, you know, I guess if someone wants to use ice for like a day or so, well, I'll even tell my patients, you know, if you're going to use ice, you're like, if you're in a lot of pain, you want to use some ice, go ahead. But as soon as it goes away and you feel better, get get off the ice. Uh, you know, I used to say the complete opposite of that, where I would say ice your leg round the clock for the first two days after your surgery. And now I don't do that at all. So we'll see how things go over the next year with me doing that. And, and if it really dynamically changes the way my patients respond and hopefully heal better. Oh, yeah, that's true, too. And I know for uh, myself, uh, for when I, I get back pain, I can't use any heat because it makes the pain even worse. Now, if I use ice, then it takes the pain away for, you know, at least five, six, maybe seven hours. Yeah. Uh, Again, I'm one of those, you know, ice guy. I have a bad back myself sometimes, and I'll put ice on it, and sometimes heat can uh, exacerbate it. And, and, you know, different different, uh, treatments for different people, too. Like I said, I'm not tied to that 100%. I'm not going to be dogma to me, but, but I'm, again, just working my way through this concept. But as it pertains to the Morton's Neuroma, there really is no reason to go in and primarily do a neurectomy as a primary surgery for this condition. The only real rational, I don't even want to say rational, the only irrational reason to say, well, you know, if you have two choices, right, you have choice A on the left is neurectomy, which has a probably about a, let's let's call it a 75 to 80% success rate, but you have a 20% chance of getting significantly worse with that procedure. And then on the other side, you have decompression, which let's say will give it the same success rate, even though I think it's probably a little bit higher. Um, it also doesn't, it doesn't denervate. Uh, your the area so it's not causing numbness when you cut a nerve you know you're losing that sensation but that choice b of decompression has a near zero chance of making you worse so why would you choose a if b is available and the only real answer is well if i do b and it doesn't work then i have then i have a problem right because it didn't work well yeah but you also didn't get worse but now you can decide whether or not you either want to live with the problem or go have that neurectomy that you wanted that, you know, was an option to begin with because you, you didn't burn any bridges. Once you cut that nerve, you burn that bridge, and now you're dealing with uh, issues, and, and you have to do a much bigger surgery to deal with that problem. Yeah, so um, let me ask before we go to the next question. Um, is cutting the nerve out uh, more invasive than actually just uh, taking a decompression off? Uh, I, I believe it is, actually, yeah. And, and let me just add this little note in there that nowadays, instead of just cutting the nerve and letting it fly, if you will, uh, a lot of surgeons will cut that nerve and try to bury it in some muscle near the area, or they'll put something on top of it. Uh, we've all tried to put things on it to keep it from growing back and creating a stump. And there is a, pro- a product out that uh, you can use now that's a little cap that you can put tuck the nerve into. Uh, and that's been out for probably about three or four years now and seems to be having good results. But still, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's a good idea to be cutting the nerve when you don't have to do that. So uh, the decompression, you know, it just requires a little bit of extra training to understand 
the little nuances of what you're doing. And it can even be done endoscopically where you're just doing it through a tiny incision. Uh, I think the success rate's probably a little bit lower when you do it that way, uh, but it's probably still consistent with the uh, success rates of neurectomy, uh, if not higher. Very nice. So now tell me um, about the restless leg syndrome, how it can be cured with the nerve decompression surgery sometimes. Yeah, so restless leg syndrome is uh, one of those sort of unknown entities. There's uh there's been a lot of stuff written about it in the scientific and medical literature. However, none of it is conclusive as to even what causes it. Mm. Um, many people write about it's a vascular problem. Uh, some people write that it's a neurological problem. Some people write it's a psychological problem. You know, is it a combination of all of them? Probably. Uh, and, and so there really is no cure for it if you, you know, ask neurologists uh, who treat it. And the reality is that since I've been involved with the uh, Association of Extremity Nerve Surgeons, uh, I've been exposed to other surgeons and now myself where I've treated people with restless leg syndrome and uh, they get better if you can identify the nerve entrapment because there's multiple areas in your leg that can be entrapped by nerves, uh, probably about five or six different areas that are commonly entrapped. And if you can identify them and, and release them, there's a fairly good chance that if someone has restless leg syndrome, it will get better. And one of the sort of uh, light bulb moments for me was probably about 10 years ago or so, <clears throat> excuse me, I had a patient who I did not know had restless leg syndrome, and uh, I did a surgery on them to decompress their nerve because they told me that they were having pain. I didn't know that every night uh, they, he slept in his uh, uh, not not in the, his wife the, the bedroom with, uh, by himself because he was jumping around so much in bed that his wife couldn't sleep in the same bed with him. So after the surgery, he told me. You know, I want to thank you for the surgery. And I said, yeah, no, no problem. You know, I'm glad you're doing well. I said, no, no, you don't understand. My restless leg syndrome is gone. I've had this for 30, 30 years. Oh. And I said, what? <laughs> he said, yeah. I said, I didn't even know you had that. He's like, yeah, I didn't even think you dealt with that or whatever. I still had to live with it. And so that allowed me to sort of, um, I'll tell you an even more interesting story in a second here. Uh, so that allowed me to sort of validate what I had already heard from other people that this works. And so, um, you know, there's probably hundreds of thousands of people in the world suffering with restless leg syndrome that don't really need to. And I'm not saying you certainly can cure everybody, but I would say at least 20% of those people can be cured with surgery. Uh, and there's been articles written on this. And Wow. What most people, what most people get treated with restless leg syndrome is are, are these horrible drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, that have har horrible side effects. And when you try to come off of them, it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I'll, I'll just touch on one more thing that I, a patient interaction that I had. Uh, this is now right when COVID was happening. A gentleman from Australia contacted me. He was, he's about six, in his late sixties and he had been living with uh, restless leg syndrome for 30 plus years mm -hmm. and nobody could, you know, treat him. And he was on these multiple medications just to allow him to get two hours of sleep a night. And every night uh, he'd try to go to bed. He couldn't, he'd have to go outside, walk three miles, come back into his house, tire himself out so he could get a couple hours of sleep. Uh, meanwhile, being on all these medications. And so we did a telemedicine consult. Uh, he was in Australia and I was here in Vegas and we talked for about an hour. And uh, after talking with him, he said, you know, Dr. Bregman, 
uh, I want to come see you. Uh, after talking to you, I want to come see you and see if we can help me out with your surgery. So he came came to town, right again, right when COVID hit. Uh, so it's a little trouble getting over here. And I examined him. And what my natural training said is that you have to find these particular findings in order to fix this problem. And when I examined him, he, he certainly wasn't classic, and I didn't feel very confident about him getting better. But he had traveled all this way, so I, I felt really bad. And I, I told him straight out, I said, listen, I don't see the classic signs of nerve entrapment here, but because this restless leg syndrome is so bizarre and unknown and there's a vascular component to it, I know that when I do this surgery, we're going to increase your blood flow because of we're taking the fascia, the, the, the constriction, not only from the nerve, but also the blood vessels because they travel together. And, you know, we can certainly do it if you're willing to do it. And he wanted to do it. So we went ahead and did the surgery on both legs at the same time, which I normally wouldn't do, but because he was from out of the country, uh, I thought we should do that. And uh, after the surgery on his first post-op visit, when he came to see me, he said, you know, Dr. Bregman, I already feel a little bit better. I don't want to get my hopes up too much. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited. And so he also told me, which I'm glad he told me after the fact, was that if this surgery did not work for him, he was going to kill himself. <gasps> and I had no idea. That, that's, you know, but that just tells you how bad this condition can be right. and living with it for so long you know, just like these complex regional pain syndrome patients, you know, the, the, the wear and tear on your mind and your psyche is just so bad. So uh, fortunately, he had about, he didn't get, you know, 100% relief, but he probably, I asked him last time I spoke to him, which was over a year ago, uh, to follow up with him. He said he was about 75% better and, and he's only taking a light, light dosage of one of the medications. So he was able to get off all the stuff that was making him sick and sound. He now sleeps about five to six hours a night and gets some reasonable sleep. So, you know, it gave him his life back. And uh, so that was just, just an amazing story to me. And when he, when he went back to Australia, he got quarantined for two weeks in some, I don't know, some dormitorium or something. He couldn't even go back home. And so he had difficulty getting his medication because he had to wean off of it because uh, he had been on it for so long. So there were some, some troubles he had to deal with while, while he was uh, in quarantine, but ultimately he did fine. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I've had the uh, restless leg syndrome for the last 26 years now. I got it uh, right about 19, 20 years old. I've had it ever since. And it's spread from my legs all the way up to my arms. And yeah, you can have entra entrapment anywhere, whether it's your legs or your arms. And, you know, honestly, you should probably be evaluated for nerve entrapments, uh, at least to see if you have them. But again, it's not always classic. So, you know, it just depends on how, how much you can take. And, you know, if you're, as you probably know, the, you know, the Mirapex that you're probably taking or have been on, you know, it's not great for you. Well, I haven't really been taking actually any uh, medication as far as uh, prescribed medication. What I have been doing is uh, taking Tylenol, and usually about a half hour, hour later, it uh, kind of subsides a little bit because it does like a little uh, muscle relaxers, or sometimes uh, you have like a glass of wine, and it relaxes you, so then uh, you're able to fall asleep for at least a few hours. Well, that's good. I mean, you probably have a, you know, obviously not as severe as cases that other gentlemen did, and every, and again, everybody's different, right? Everyone's Everyone's thing is always different, and so... That's what that's what makes practicing medicine and surgery so difficult. And they call it practice because there's there's all nuances that we don't even understand genetically and and underlying uh, metabolic issues that uh, you know affect. It. And that's why you know when, when I do exactly the same procedure on 
you know, 10 different people, you don't you get 10 different kind of results. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And how does restless leg syndrome and um, CRP, CRPS um, come into play? Does the restless leg syndrome trigger the CRPS or how does that work? Well, in general, those two entities are completely different. Uh, they, they should not, I'm sure some transect somewhere and collide, but they're really two different entities. So someone with restless leg syndrome, let me put this way, I've never seen anyone with restless leg have complex regional pain syndrome, but I bet you there's people with complex regional pain syndrome that probably have restless leg syndrome. So I haven't personally seen one yet, um, and they're not really tied together, uh, but I'm sure that there are people who exist who have both. So with your experience, um, what have you come across other patients with CRPS? Um, you know, you don't have to tell the names and stuff, but just the general stories. Um, what kind of other stories do you have with patients with CRPS? Well, unfortunately, most of them are not good, right? Because CRPS is just not not enough research and study is being done to really figure this out. And it, and it may be that it's because oftentimes, you know, this is a entity that is started by typically some innocuous little thing that, that grows into this raging pain machine that embeds itself into your brain. Your brain can't really get out of its way to, to heal it. And as a peripheral nerve surgeon of the lower extremity, my job is to be able to tell people that, you know, it used to be if someone has Crips, complex regional pain syndrome, that you don't, you don't ever operate on them. You'll make them worse. That was dogma for many, many years. And the reality of that is that sometimes the very thing that's causing their Crips is, let's say, a, a, a pinched nerve or an injured nerve somewhere. And so if you can go fix that, then maybe their Crips goes away. And so now with uh, things that we're doing perioperatively, like using ketamine and uh, TMS therapy and other things that can sort of relax the brain a bit and, and kind of dull down the, the surgical procedures a bit. We can, we can have a little more positivity about going in and operating on people who do have complex regional pain syndrome. So my experience has gotten better over the years, but it's still, you know, frustrating to treat the, the, the condition because there's so many things underlying that could be causing it. As I mentioned earlier, that, you know, doing, doing one procedure on this person with Crips may not work for another person with, you know, similar symptoms because they're, they're, Either their mental status is different or uh, their genetics is different or the, the mechanism of action is different. So, again, there's so many things. But, you know, one of the more promising things uh, that we do have is, are these nerve stimulators. And, and not only is there uh, stuff that you can do up in the spine, but also these peripheral nerve stimulators that, again, if you can sort of uh, get to the origin of where these nerves are, and place a little wire next to them that that interferes with that ability for that nerve to send the pain uh, signal to the brain, then, you know, you can hopefully reduce that person's pain. And, you know, when someone has Crips, you know, they always often mention their pain level is very high. You know, very few of them say my pain level is a three or a four. Uh, They usually say it's an eight to a a 12 out of 10. And so, if you can take them from an eight out of eight to twelve down to a six to seven, that's that's a win. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and that's that's what we tell people when we're doing these things. That listen, it's very unlikely we're going to get you pain free, but if we can get you fifty percent better as a, as a maximum goal and get you off some of the meds you're on and, and allow you to function better, would you you know like to do that? And almost all of them would say yes. Now, are there a lot of studies done on CRPS that you know of? Because um, a lot of you know what we just learned within the last few weeks it seems like a lot of it is relatively new quote unquote you know within the last 20 years so do you know of a lot of uh, medical studies that's done on crps i actually don't and the re- part of the reason i don't is you know in my world i actually don't see a ton of complex regional pain syndrome patients uh mm-hmm. they're predominantly seen by quote pain management doctors and, you know, it would actually be a service to those patients to be evaluated by someone like me <clears throat> just to see if there is something uh, that there's a generator of that pain that may or may not uh, respond to some sort of surgical procedure, whether it's more invasive or not. But um, there is not a lot of uh, research being done. And, and why is that? You know, part of it is it's so it's so all over the map as far as the degree and, and what's involved, and, and we still don't know enough about it, but also money. It's always, always, almost always money. If there's no money to be made studying it, then it's probably not going to get studied. And, you know, the amount of people with Crips uh, versus, you know, as an example, people with high cholesterol, it, it's dwarfed. So you know how much money is spent on p- treating people with cholesterol uh, problems as by all the commercials that you see. So, um, uh, it's unfortunate that that's the case, but that's the reality. Yeah. So now in other topics that um, Deborah and I we uh, were talking about in her first episode, she talked a lot about um, holistic um, aspects and diet and nutrition. So can you talk to us about um, how diet and nutrition may pertain to podiatry and medicine? Yeah, I'm very glad you asked me that question because <clears throat> I've been very into those two subjects, diet and nutrition, which go together sort of, um, because without that foundation of having that fuel that you're putting in your body to help your body out, then everything any doctor does is not going to work as well. And if you're really taking it to the extreme where someone has just a poor, really poor diet where they're eating fast food every day in large quantities and lots of sugar, you know, that that creates inflammation in your body. Mm-hmm. And so if you have inflammation in your body, inflammation is the root of all evil. And right. inflammation causes heart disease, it causes hypercholesterolemia, it causes pain, it causes weight gain, just everything. And so I actually give probably about 75% of my patients get a little sheet that I've made for them that has a lot of resources for them to use to learn about diet and nutrition. Uh, and I kind of um, dial that down to one page uh, with a couple of books that I recommend to my patients, along with some uh, website resources, uh, and even even a website that is for people with uh, food addiction, especially to processed food. So mm-hmm. I really try to get that through to people, and, and most people appreciate it. Every once in a while, I get some patient who's like, I didn't come here to hear about my, my <laughs> diet and nutrition. You know, I, I came here to get my foot fixed. Well, mm-hmm. if you weigh 380 pounds, you're never going to get your foot day. Yeah, so, right. You know, let's, let's, you know, let's work on that too while we're working on your feet. And, you know, often patients, I think people now understand that weight loss is 90% diet and 10% exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people used to think, oh, I got to exercise to lose weight. And the reality is, no, you don't. You could not exercise at all maybe just do some strength training and you'll lose just 
whatever weight you want to lose as long as your your diet is good. The, mm-hmm. the, the exercise is really more for your cardiac health, mm-hmm. uh, not really for losing weight. You know, what I found personally, and I know this is more of a supposed to be, you know, CRPS and uh, nerve, you know, um, podcast, but my personal experience uh, when you're talking about nutrition and diet and how it affects your overall health, it is very true. And um, inflammation, I've suffered with um, arthritis. I'm 44 years old. I started getting it in my mid twenties and it's in my grandma had it. My mom had it. So it's all in um, my genes, but I didn't know what was causing it. So I started taking some herbal supplements and that takes away inflammation and that helped me so much. And then now I just recently discovered um, ginger drinking ginger tea in the morning. Um, it even helps more because it, it decreases the inflammation, you know, so, um, when Deborah was talking about holistic aspects of that, it excited me because um, in common knowledge, like when I was growing up, going to school, they didn't say they didn't teach us about nutrition in detailed. And now, you know, the last what 20 years, it's been changing 20 years, 10 years ago, it all changes. So um, I'm glad that now we're talking more about holistic aspects and how it all comes into play. And of course, your diet and nutrition does affect your overall body health. So um, the fact that you're talking about it, it's encouraging because I don't know a lot of doctors. I mean, they may say towards the end of your evaluation, you know, as a patient, oh, you need to lose like 15, 20 pounds. But then they just kind of peter off after that, you know, da, 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 you know, but then we got to address this with the medication and whatnot. So I'm glad that you agree to that when you're talking to patients, because it does affect them. Like you were saying, if you're 400 pounds, you're not going to be able to feel better on your feet, you know, so you do have to lose weight. So um, that's yeah. a good thing that mm-hmm. you talk about. Yeah, interestingly, you know, something I never thought I would be getting into is uh, I'm actually, uh, for people who have difficulty losing the weight, you know, let's say they've made a real good effort to try to lose that weight with the information that I've given them. And they're like, Doc, you know, I've done everything you said and I just can't get rid of this weight. I've now started uh, using some, uh, you know, supplements like uh, semaglutide uh, to help them lose weight. You know, that's something that has to be injected subcutaneously. Uh, and, you know, you see these commercials for the, the Ozempic, which is basically what that is. Uh, and so I started using that in people who are sort of hit a plateau and they can't get past it. You know, not as something permanent, but just something they can go on for, let's say, four months to get them over that hump and then, you know, carry on with their, their program. You know, it's, it's, it's all tied together. You can't just do one thing. There's no shortcuts. Um, this is not a shortcut, but it's for those people that, you know, need that extra boost because their metabolism, there's something wrong with it. And so I don't mind using a drug like semaglutide uh, and some other things to help enhance the, the weight loss as long as it's relatively safe. Um, you know, I, I'm not into using amphetamines or things of that nature to help people, uh, go down that road. And and I'm really trying to avoid, you know, any sort of stomach stapling or gastroplasty uh, if possible. Sometimes it's not possible, but, you know, um, those those are things that, you know, uh, can have, you know, problems down the road. So we're always trying to do it naturally whenever possible. Yeah, that's that's always a good thing. And uh, since we're on uh, the the topic of uh, basically the holistic, uh, you know, type of thing, what is your views or on holistic uh, medicine compared to the uh, traditional medicine? Mm. So I, 
I like a mix of them. I, I would, uh, so holistic for us is really more, more or less meaning like Eastern medicine, right? Uh, you, you know, the uh, Chinese, Asian medicine, Indian medicine, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And they're obviously doing something right, right? You know, our way isn't the only way. And in fact, our way really, if you think about it, is just the generation of money for the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, that's really what most of our, med- you know, you go in, the doctor sees you, writes a prescription, go get it filled. So mm-hmm. the pharmaceutical companies fund all these these so-called trials to support their their positive outcomes and i know for a fact that you know they will they will never publish negative stuff about their products if they come out with a product you know if they come out with a drug that doesn't work you'll never see it advertised you know they only you know this is common sense but they only uh, advertise and publish things that quote work from the studies they produced Right. And oftentimes, oftentimes, 10 years later, the studies are proven ineffective or they were, you know, uh, there was something not kosher about them. So my feelings are that you should always try to, I, I would prefer to be more holistic in my approach to treating people um, whenever possible. And that, you know, you fall back on things like uh, uh, prescribing medications that are, have side effects you know every every drug you get is a side effect you, you know whether it's positive or negative that's that's the, the the important thing and then even with surgery you know i i do not push surgery on anyone there are some times where i look at something and i say you know this needs surgery you have to have surgery if you want this fixed there, are, there is no option b but <clears throat> i am definitely uh, as i've gotten more into practice pro conservative care avoid surgery if you can because every time you take that knife to someone you're creating scar tissue right. and that scar tissue may or may not you know uh, cause a problem so you know there are obviously times where you have to, to do surgery where someone has a tumor or you know they broke their bone stuff like that but for elective stuff you know i, I do try to avoid it whenever possible and in in my world uh, with nerve stuff with something like tarsal tunnel syndrome uh, which is basically like the carpal tunnel syndrome of the, of the wrist, uh, which is tarsal tunnel syndrome is, is almost as common as, as carpal tunnel syndrome, but people don't know enough about it and they, 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 they misdiagnose it quite often. But that's when I diagnose that, probably 80% of the people that I diagnose with it wind up having surgery because they just don't respond to conservative therapy. Now, um, talking about the holistic aspects, um, do you suggest a lot of your, to your patients um, physical therapy? Does that seem to help them? Or are the patients that you've seen, you know, even the ones with um, CRPS, are they much too severe to the point where uh, physical therapy uh, would not help them? If I see someone who has just developed complex regional pain syndrome, like within the week, week or a month, I think physical therapy in the right hands can be very helpful. But if it's long-standing, I don't really find it to be that helpful. Mm. Uh, for my post-surgical nerve patients uh, who need to get moving, and that's one of the things too. A lot of surgeons, after they do some nerve surgeries, you want to get that nerve gliding and moving right away. If it does, don't it gets stuck in the scar tissue. And these mm-hmm. surgeons incorrectly tell their patients, you know, I need you off your foot for two to three weeks, and you're in a cast or a splint. And that is literally the worst thing you can do to someone who just had a nerve surgery where you need to keep it moving mm. and i i don't I, I don't understand the rationale for this from their viewpoint i mean I, I guess they're trying to avoid you know swelling and the stitches popping open 
But, you know, you don't have to have them walking all the time, but you should get them moving as quickly as, as you can. So um, I, I think PT can be a big part of that. And sometimes the patient can do it on their own, like go walking in a swimming pool. Uh, as far as for complex regional pain syndrome, again, I think it's variable. Some people benefit from it and some people would get worse. You know, when you say about moving and um, moving around after surgery, surgery, I agree with that too, because um, I've had two surgeries in the past and right after the surgery, you know, it's important to get moving around because like you said, uh, the blood flow and everything. And I found that I've actually healed a lot faster and I've had, I was able to get off the uh, pain medication um, quicker. And, you know, I was on, um, what was it? The prescription uh, pain medication for like a day or two after surgery. Yeah. They wanted you on it for two weeks, two weeks. And then, uh, but once I was moving around within that short amount of time, then I was able to decrease the um, prescription medication uh, pain meds and then onto the generic over the counter. And so that helped me heal a lot faster. I wasn't as, um, constipated okay. <laughs> from the pain medication. Um, you know, so it helped my healing process and along with diet uh, and good nutrition. So it's good that you um, bring that up and you talk to your patients about that. Yeah, that's all tied together. You know, again, whatever we could do to give you the best outcome, we want to do that. And, you know, just like when I think, I don't know when they started doing it, but orthopedic surgeons who do knee replacement surgery, you know, you're, you're, you're moving at day one. And so why wouldn't you do that with nerve surgery? You know, it doesn't make sense why, okay, well, we'll do it for this, but we won't do it for that. I, right. I, I, I don't, I don't understand that, that thought process, but. Yes. Yeah. And I wish there was a lot more uh, doctors in the world, uh, just like you, you yeah. know, that think the same way you do. Cause a lot of these other doctors are like, whoa, come on, man. I mean, <laughs> yeah. You know, you have more, uh, you have a, a good bedside manner. You, you seem very open to learning new things and you also, take time to listen to your patients and you also have the uh, sympathy and empathy towards your patients which the doctors that I've come across they don't seem to have that as much because they just seem to want to cram the the uh, patients into your their consultation time get them in and get them out you know especially my own personal excuse I've actually had doctors that have their hand on the doorknob as they come in to talk to me real quick and one then, leg out the door and one <laughs> leg in the door yeah so talking to you Dr. Bergman is such a pleasure and I'm so happy that you took the time to talk to us on our podcast now for those that want to reach um, Dr. Bergman's office, he is at the Bergman Foot and Ankle uh, and Nerve Center in Las Vegas, Nevada. They could be reached at www.bergman, uh, is it FACE? F-A-N-C-E? Am I pronouncing it right? Uh, so it, I know it's a hard thing to pronounce, even my name, right? So it's Bregman Fance like fence, but with an A, so F-A-N-C-E.com. Okay, I apologize for that. And um, you can call him at his office number at 702-703-2526. And now for the next episode in the CRPS Warriors Foundation series will be airing on Saturday, April 22nd, which will feature Dr. James Wilton. So Dr. Bergman, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you. My pleasure. And uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you guys. And I hope that uh, 
people listening can uh, uh, learn a little something and, and get some education and, and hopefully we can just keep moving forward with this horrible condition of this complex regional pain syndrome and you know maybe five years from now uh, we'll have a much better understanding of and hopefully uh, helping these people out who are suffering. Yeah. Yes and we'll definitely keep your uh, number on our own personal Rolodex <laughs> if in case that. Mike needs to contact you in the future for consultation. Hopefully you'll accept our insurance so we'll definitely be in touch hopefully <laughs> we'll figure it out one way or another yes yes sir thank you so much for your time have a good day thanks you too take care bye bye-bye thanks for listening to the mike and phoebe show on alternative twist radio if you missed any past episodes just search the mike and phoebe show or alternative twist radio on any major podcast app